Please be seated. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Um, and this Reformation Sunday morning, I'd like to do something a little different and possibly something a little daring. This may, this may backfire on me, but I, I, what I want to do this morning is consider the issue of the gospel. Um, most famously, justification by faith, the linchpin of the gospel, the, the mechanism of how we can be forgiven is at the center of the Protestant Reformation. But Martin Luther, a, a Roman Catholic monk, was reading through, studying through the, the epistle to the Romans, and as he undersaw it and read it, Paul's meaning was plain, the gospel was plain, and it was significantly different from what he had been taught, what the church was espousing. My goal this morning is to just read through, I don't have any other side references, to read through, commenting briefly, Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, we'll skip over a couple small sections, and hopefully show you as well the clarity of Paul's message of the gospel. What is the good news? How can men be saved? In particular, I'm going to highlight two um, distinctions, contrasts between Roman Catholic theology and what I'd call biblical or Protestant theology. The first on the nature of the disease. What you're going to see with the gospel is the cure will correspond to the disease. Is man sick or dead? Does man need help and strengthening or does he need resurrection? Um, the two sources I'll be citing to try to highlight some of this, um, Martin Luther and Erasmus of Rotterdam wrote back and forth, arguing, debating with each other over the issue of the sinfulness of man, the corruption of man, what's sometimes called the depravity of man. And in, in chapter 1 and 2 and 3, Paul is very clear on this point. You see, if I could oversimplify, in Roman Catholic theology, man is corrupt, man is fallen, man is sinful, but there's still some spark of good. And significantly, that spark of good can be, you know, can be nurtured, increased, it can grow. And justification in Roman Catholic theology is largely about becoming just and righteous in practice, taking that spark, taking that little bit of goodness, cooperating with grace cooperating through the sacerdotal system, performing of works, and becoming more and more righteous and just. And, and, and Luther disagreed strongly. And so I will read a few quotes from The Bondage of the Will, Luther's response. The other source I will cite a little later are from some of the um, Catholic responses to the Reformation. The Reformation began in 1517, and it took the church a while to take it seriously. And eventually, um, the Pope called a council, the Council of Trent, which met for nearly 20 years, from 1546 to 1563. And significantly, at that council, they made some canons, anathemas. They, they, they took the formula, if someone says such and such, let them be anathema, accursed. And so, Rome doubled down other understanding of justification, and I believe you'll see that's in stark contrast to what Paul actually says. So those will be the two additional things I'll be citing. With that, by way of an introduction, we have a lot of ground to cover. I'd like to begin by reading the first 17 verses of Romans, some of the word of prayer. Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, 
called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all those in Rome who are beloved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last come, succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then we get to Paul's thesis, if you want to consider what's the purpose of the letter of Romans, these next two verses are as good a place as any to find that thesis statement. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith One of the reasons Paul in his letter to the Romans is so detailed and dogmatic is precisely because they have no apostolic foundation. As best as we can tell, the church at Rome was founded by those who heard Peter's preaching in Acts at Pentecost and then returned back. Remember, Jews from all over the world were at Pentecost. And our best guess is that returning Jews from Pentecost planted the church in Rome. Paul wants to come visit them, and ahead of his prospective visit, he wants to lay out his theology. And so we get some of the most orderly, some of the most well-reasoned and clear to follow, unpacking. We know his central point is the gospel, the good news, how it declares God's righteousness. Note, why is he not ashamed of it? Because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul is eager to do that revealing, to show how men and women are saved. Um, and, and so as we go through that this morning, I would encourage you to, to hear this, to preach the gospel to yourself, to, to see the good news of what God has done. Now, surprisingly, if you look at verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. Look how he begins verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. And your first blank here is the gospel reveals God's wrath. As I hinted at earlier, your understanding of the problem will directly impact your understanding of the remedy. And Paul, eager to proclaim the righteousness of God in the gospel, has to begin by revealing God's anger and his wrath. We won't flee to Christ 
if we don't realize the, the peril we are, in, we are in. I think today, probably more than ever, we can be embarrassed of God's wrath. The doctrine of God's wrath can be so offensive. Most people today, if they are willing to acknowledge the possibility of a God at all, assumes he's sort of like a C.S. Lewis said, a heavenly grandparent who just kind of gives candy to the kids and hopes everyone has a good time. And so to properly understand the gospel, we, like Paul, must begin by considering God's wrath. Why is God angry? Does he have good reason to be angry? Most of our text this morning is is focusing on this point. Through the rest of Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, all the way to verse 20, Paul is systematically, intentionally closing every door of escape. He wants us to understand God is angry. The wrath of God abides over man. It justly does so. It's fitting. It's right. And that we have no excuse, no recourse apart from the gospel of God. That's what Paul is intending to do. So I just want to read through this. And we wrestle with this because I'll hear people say, well, the reason people go to hell is they reject Jesus. It is a sin to reject Jesus. That's not the reason Paul gives in the first instance why God is angry. We sometimes wonder, what about people who've never heard the gospel? Paul will address that. So, my points here, there's not many blanks, because I think the text speaks for itself. I'd like to begin, why is God angry? What is God's wrath revealed at? What is the heart of sin? Point A, in verses 18 to 23, against our stubborn rebellion. Against our stubborn rebellion. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without Excuse. Notice that phrase, without excuse. Paul is trying to deal with every possible objection. And I want you to notice in the first instance, what is God angry at? He hasn't mentioned anything man does to man, the things that we tend to view as evil. He will by the end of the chapter. But that's not in the first instance what provokes God's anger. What provokes God's anger is a willful, intentional, knowing rebellion on the part of man. That the text is clear. I sometimes jokingly say I don't believe in atheists. I'm an ah, ah, atheist. Because the, the charge of the prosecution insists not just that man can know God exists if he looks around. Paul makes a stronger statement than that. He says man has looked, man has seen, man has understood, and man has responded in holding it down. Look, look at the language. What are they suppressing? They're holding down, suppressing truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It is plain to them, not it could be. This isn't potential knowledge. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Every man, every woman, every child, everywhere on earth knows about the creator God. They don't know all about him. They know about his power and his glory. And what we are doing, what all man does apart from the gospel, is like a child 
sticking his fingers in his ears, closing his eyes, and humming to himself, pretending mom or dad isn't there. Now, if you start to view that as the nature of man, I think you can see why God would find that provoking. There aren't innocent, well-meaning people out there. Not if, not if Paul's indictment is to be believed. We don't accidentally sin. We're not good people who do bad things. We are cosmic rebels at heart. Why, why would we engage in this truth suppression project? Because of our refusal to give God honor or thanks. There's a motive. Why would we do this? Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. If there is a creator God, I owe him fealty, honor, and thanksgiving. And that will conflict with my desire to do what I want. And so universally, men suppress that truth, or they give it a makeover to something they're more comfortable with. And ultimately, point three, why? Because we want to worship and serve the created order. We want to live for money. We want to live for pleasure. We want to live for stuff. And so... Against our willful exchange of his glory, claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Now, there's the heart of the accusation. There's the heart of the problem, and it has yet to deal with any man-on-man sin. It's all vertical. Why is God angry at man? Why does man need a gospel? Because each and every one of us knew plain well saw, understood the evidences, the existence of God, and we suppressed it, held down that truth, did not embrace it because we didn't want to be thankful. And in the process, we robbed God of his glory. We exchanged his glory for the created order because we wanted to worship and serve and live for things rather than the creator God who's forever blessed. Do you see how that diagnosis of the problem is significantly different than everyone's got some good and bad in them and we all make mistakes? At heart, we're guilty of treason. Willful, intentional, non-accidental. Now, I'm sure most of you are famously familiar with the rest of this chapter. You'll notice here, by the way, I have a little asterisk next to the text. There's three places where I'm going to skip over some text just for the sake of time. I advise you to read it. The rest of chapter one is God's response to this outrageous provocation. Three times, he gives man over. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. So in the flow of the argument, here's what man did, here's God's response. And in that setting, homosexuality, lesbianism, and all of the laundry list of sins in 29 and following are not fundamentally what God will judge. He will judge them. Rather, they're evidences of God's judgment already. They're the fruit the tree bears that proves its corruption. But don't miss the heart of the charge is the refusal to honor, worship, and give thanks to God as God. The clear evidence are all the way we live our lives, the way we conduct our, our, our relationships, the way we sin against each other. But at heart, it's a refusal to deal honestly with what we know. And to let God be God. So that's the first thing the gospel reveals is God's anger, his wrath at our rebellion. Now, chapter 2 begins with another no excuse. Paul's anticipating now another objection. 
Well, maybe this laundry list of gross overt sin at the end of chapter 1 describes some people. But what about morality and moral people? Well, God's angry at our attempts at morality as well. And Paul imagines someone looking on and saying, tut, tut, we're beyond that. Some people may live that way, not I. Well, let's read. And he, he informs the would-be moral person they're condemned as well. Therefore, you have no excuse. Chapter 2, verse 1, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What Paul's saying is another means by which we could be condemned, first, is that we know God exists. The second is we, we know right from wrong, and we know doing wrong brings judgment. I, I use this a lot of times in, in evangelism. Well, how, how do we know that? Because we judge other people. My twins, one of them will take something for the other, the other will try to strike it. What's the rationale? You, you've offended me, you've done something wrong, I will punish you. If you've ever yelled at someone, hit someone, you have demonstrated that you come hardwired into this world knowing transgression brings wrath. And you've poured out your wrath. Well, Paul says to the moralist, the very standard by which you judge other people, you, you do the same things. Maybe not as overtly. Maybe not as grossly. Maybe just in your mind as you imagine what you would do. But we do the same things. If God were simply to judge you by the standard with which you judge other people, every single one of us would be condemned it, forget God's righteous standard, because we're, to get, we're going next is to, to the people who've never heard the scriptures. God can righteously judge us by his holiness, but let's just say, as a thought experiment, he were only to judge us by how we've judged other people. Jeremy, I'm only going to convict you of sin for the things you've convicted other people in your heart of. I'm damned thoroughly by that standard. And I believe each and every one of you are as well. Each and every one of you are as well. Because, we're going to skip over 6 through 11, where Paul insists that God's judgment is just, and if there are righteous people, God will reward them. We're going to find out in chapter 3, there aren't any, but it's, it's a fair judgment. God doesn't just punish, he also rewards those who do righteousness, those who obey him get rewarded. But then he picks up in verse 12, and I think here dealing particularly as we think about unreached peoples, those who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, what of them? For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, I say now we're considering people who don't have the law, they don't have scripture. These are the people in the unreached lands just as much as they're the Greeks down the street. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law 
is written on their hearts, while their own conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Another rationale, another reason why we stand condemned, not only do we judge others, and if God used that judgment on us, we would be condemned, but in addition to the knowledge of God evidenced through the created order, there's another piece of knowledge every person has. When we, when we talk about natural revelation or general revelation, we're talking about not potential knowledge, but what God has given each and every one of us. In Romans chapter 1, we saw God has shown to each and every one of us his existence, his power, his glory. Here's another thing he's revealed. There's a reflection, an evidence of a work of God's law in our hearts. In every culture, in every place, some semblance of morality and understanding. It can be corrupted. There can be confusion over the fine details of it. But there's never been a culture that has produced feelings of honor and glory and admiration for one who betrays those who have been loyal to him. In every culture we come across at heart, Lewis wrote on this as well, the basics of a consensus morality. And so what Paul's saying here is set aside the first basis of judgment, the rebellion against God. Set aside the second, if God were to judge you just as you judged others. What if God only judged you by your conscience? What if he did that? Would you stand or fall? Well, each and every one of us would fall. Because each and every one of us have again and again and again done things that we ourselves know to be wrong. Our conscience is condemning us. That's the terrifying thing about standing for God on judgment. He, he could call our own consciences as a witness for the prosecution. And our own consciences would thoroughly and mercilessly condemn us. Our morality is insufficient. And this is true of people who've never been reached before. They know God exists. They know right and wrong. They do things their consciences condemn them. And God's wrath is poured out against such as it's poured out against us. They, we, are without excuse. This is, this is what the gospel has to remedy. The problem is worse than we imagine. Let's continue. Let's continue now. God's wrath is revealed against our attempts at religion. Now, the religion Paul deals with here is Judaism. In which case, it's the best possible scenario to pick. Judaism is from God. The, the, the Old Testament was from God. Judaism today is not keeping what God revealed. But Judaism, the law they're reading, the books of Moses, this is from God. This is real revelation. This is real instruction. This is true religion as far as it goes. And they prided themselves on having it and on being circumcised and participating. Surely they had a way out and an excuse. Surely they didn't need a crucified Messiah. But the problem is simply agreeing with truth is not enough. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know that his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? 
While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, the Old Testament properly understood, as Paul will argue, starting in chapter 3, verse 21, shows the need of a substitute, the need of forgiveness. But if you were going to try to take the law, the the Decalogue, the law of Moses, and make it a code to live by, Paul is saying, simply having it, simply amening it isn't enough. You got to do it perfectly. And so for any one of Paul's hearers who thinks because they know the law, because they can quote the law, because they approve of it and praise the law, that that somehow is going to take care of them. He says, you got another thing coming. Simply agreeing with the truth is not enough. And also because external ritual alone is of no value. The Jews had a sign of their covenant with God, circumcision, and they prized it. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is, uncircum- nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. Any, any attempts to claim you may be an exception because you, you've performed in a ritual, you've been baptized, you've had communion, you've been confirmed, you can quote the Bible. If you're still coming at it from a point of view of, I will keep what God requires, I will be righteous, Paul says you're condemned and you have no excuse. Which brings us then to chapter 3. I skip over the first eight verses where he deals with a sub-objection anticipated from the Jews. Well, well, well what's, that's the case, Paul. What's the point of being a Jew at all? Well, you have the scriptures. Much in every way. God revealed his oracles to you. He's going to go on in chapter 3 and 4 to point out that his readers, his imaginary interlocutor has not read the Old Testament as well as they should have. He's going to insist that his gospel is testified to by the prophets. But I want to jump now to verse 9 to his summary. And here, Paul sort of ties it all up. Now, let's consider what he's anticipated. He's brought the formal charge. You know perfectly well God exists, and you don't want to be thankful to him, and you don't want to honor him. So you hold that truth down because you want to worship the stuff and not him. And God responds in giving us over enslaving us to our new master we've chosen and our lives and the conduct we live prove our corruption. Then Paul insists that even those of us who would be moral are guilty because we condemn others. And God could righteously condemn each and every one of us simply on the basis of the judgments we give to others. Further, our own consciences, if they were called in, would condemn us. And so now in the summary statement, you'll see that We are not good people who do bad things. We're not even people with good and bad in us. From head to toe, we are corrupt. Look look at what Paul says in his summary. 
No one seeks God. No one is righteous. No one does good. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's why a seeker service isn't terribly helpful. There's one seeker, it's God. Seeking his flock. All, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So back in chapter 2, when he said, look, if there are people who do good, if there are people who honor God, God will reward them. Now we learn that they don't exist. This is Paul's summary on mankind. The nicest, most sympathetic unbeliever you can think of. This is God's declaration of them as much as it is of you. Children, if they haven't come to faith in Christ. This is, this, it's worse than we think, but we've got to take that in. So we can understand the scope of God's greater grace. Against all mankind, Jew and Greek. Paul's insisting we're all in the same basket. The basket of wrath. Deservedly. Um, I'll read a quote from Luther here. This was a particular point that the uh, Roman Catholic Church and Erasmus were challenging. And he's responding to Erasmus's diatribe. They debated in writing back and forth, kind of like writing articles in a journal or something. And so and reading Luther is fun because he's German and he's a little pompous and he's, it's, 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 it's feisty. Okay. <clears throat> Where are you now, my good diatribe? You promised earlier that you would freely acknowledge that the most excellent thing in man's is flesh, that is ungodly, if it were proved to you by Scripture. Acknowledge it now, then, as you hear that the most excellent thing in man is not only ungodly, but ignorant of God, scornful of God, turned to evil, and unprofitable for good. He's, he's commenting on this passage in Romans. He's saying, Erasmus, how much clearer could it be? There is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks for God. Not even one. Together they have become thoroughly corrupt and worthless. There there is no good thing in us naturally. The verdict here, the whole world is held accountable without excuse. That's the meaning of the phrase that comes next. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What Paul is saying is, in this envisioned courtroom where the entire assembled universe is and all of mankind is present, how many objections, arguments will God have to hear? None. Every mouth is silent. The implication, there is no valid excuse. There is no valid line of appeal. Further implication, every person at that judgment will understand the justice of the judgment. There will be no sneering at the judge. There will be the cold recognition. This is fitting. This is right. He is right. Every mouth is silenced. 
Luther, again, writing about this point, sort of teases Erasmus. How, pray, are all mouths stopped? If a power that gives us a degree or ability is left to us, one could then say to God, here is a thing that you cannot condemn. Here is something which you have given a certain degree or capability for good. But no, every mouth is stopped. There is no line of appeal. There is no, no, no. Here's one thing that's pleasing. Head to toe, inwardly and outwardly, we are rebels. Which brings us to the last point here. The principle, law-keeping does not atone for law-breaking. I've made this point many times. We get this intuitively. No judge would be impressed with an attorney defending his client who said, yes, yes, Your Honor, completely guilty of manslaughter. However, I want to show you this list of laws my client has kept from his birth. He's never been a forger. He's never sold government secrets. Surely, when you consider how many laws my client has kept, you aren't just going to nitpick about manslaughter, are you? Law doesn't work that way. Law is built to condemn. Law tells you what transgression is. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, the Roman Catholic Church had tried to redefine this notion of law in Romans as ceremonial law. Because, of course, the Roman Catholic Church had plenty of works you could do to gain favor and merit with God. My final quote from Luther here. Moreover, it is erroneous to say that ceremonial works are deadly. Paul never said that. What he says is they do not justify or in any way help man to free himself from ungodliness in God's sight. So Luther is reading Romans. Hopefully you're seeing this in Romans too. Man has not got some sickness that's going to kill him. He's dead. He doesn't have some good part of him that you can grow and develop. His mouth, his tongue, his hands, his feet, his will, his mind is corrupted. And that's the nature of what we need. There's, there's no, here, do these five things and you'll be okay. We need a substitute. We need atonement. We need a sacrifice. And that is what God provides. We need to be remade. The scripture's full of some wonderful but statements. We saw those in Ephesians. Here's what happened. But God. And look at how verse 21 begins. But now. So understand, Paul believes he is just fully condemned without excuse, with every tongue silent, all of mankind, the moral, the religious, the pagans, everyone. And he's done that to drive them to the cross, to drive us to Christ, to see our need. This, this good news that follows is good news if you'll receive God's judgment of who and what you are. Because the gospel reveals God's righteousness. We now return to what Paul, where Paul left off in 1.17. Look at this. In one sense, you can view 1.18 all the way to 3.20 as kind of an aside. Look how perfectly he picks up his theme. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest or revealed. Now we're picking back up to what he said he was excited about in chapter 1, 16 and 17. But 
Paul understood, I need to explain the problem before you'll appreciate the solution. This righteousness to which the scriptures testify. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We're going to see, in short order, that the scriptures do exactly that. What Paul's saying is, I'm not coming with some new teaching. It's embedded there in the law. It's embedded there in the Old Testament. You just weren't seeing it. You were coming at the law as something to be kept, something you could accomplish. And God's righteousness does not come that way. Rather, it's a righteousness through the redemption in Christ Jesus. Now, here we get the first mention of Jesus since our introduction. And we need to say a few words about who he is. Because Paul's already given us a pretty high Christology in the first four verses. Turn back to chapter 1. And we get the humanity and the deity of Christ. Son of David, son of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he proclaimed beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. There's the humanity and the royal line tying in with all the Old Testament prophecies. and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. There's... Son of God, Son of David, humanity, deity of Jesus. At this point in chapter 3, he doesn't develop who Jesus is. He's already laid that foundation there, and he'll talk more about it later. So let us get back to our outline here. The righteousness through the redemption in Christ Jesus, Son of David, Son of God. Next point he wants to make the redeemer of all Jews and Greeks alike because the problem covers all without exception Jew and Greek the savior and the solution is equally all encompassing the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus so the next point to get, the, where, where is redemption found? It's not found in a law to keep. It's found in Christ Jesus. This redemption that we need is found in him. And he is the redeemer, not just for Jews, but for Greeks also. And in Paul's thinking, those are the only two categories, Jews and non-Jews. Next, righteousness demonstrated in Christ's crucifixion. Righteousness demonstrated in Christ's crucifixion. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation. That's your next blank. God put him forward publicly as a propitiation. In English and in Greek. It's a pretty narrow, precise term. That which absorbs, removes, and appeases anger. That, that's the idea. As big as the problem we had was, as great as our sinfulness is, there's a redemption in Christ Jesus, and through his death on the cross being put forward, he satisfies God's wrath at that. We need not fear looking at the full scope of our rebellion and sin because the Savior God has provided is more than sufficient. 
The atonement is enough. Now, here's a point of clear disagreement with Roman Catholic theology. Now, this is from the Councils of Trent, but as recently as the 1950s at Vatican II, all the canons of the Council of Trent were reaffirmed. As best as I understand, this is still Orthodox Catholic teaching. Let me read to you um, Canon 30. I, I think Paul has just declared we have a satisfying sacrifice. Here's Canon 30. If anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received to every penitent sinner, that the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such a way that there remains no debt temporal or eternal to be paid in this world or in purgatory, let him be anathema. If anyone says the sacrifice of Christ received in justification so deals with God's anger that there is no more wrath to be dealt with in purgatory, let them be damned. And yet here, God put Christ forward publicly as a propitiation. The sacrifice was sufficient to demonstrate his righteousness in justifying sinners. Now, this is remarkable. What's the most common objection you hear when you talk about the gospel with others? Probably the most common one I hear is the problem of evil, sometimes called theodicy. And it goes something like this. If God is so great, powerful, and if he's so loving, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there pain and suffering and evil in the world? And in this framing of the problem of evil, God is the one in the dock. He's the one being interrogated. He better count for himself. Paul has the problem of evil in view, and he frames it a little differently. This is absolutely remarkable. (laughs) For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous, that we're justified, pronounced innocent. By his grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, so we know we're talking about the cross, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It's just stunning. Paul's problem of evil is not how does God let bad things happen to good people. Paul's problem of evil is how does a holy God not send each and every person to hell? without compromising his righteousness. You see, when you start looking at the sinfulness of man biblically, you're no longer sympathetic for the nice people that bad things happen to, but rather you become equally affronted and outraged at the righteous God and the rebellious sticking their fingers in their ears, closing their eyes. I can't see you. I can't hear you. I don't worship something else people. And you think, how on earth does this holy God put up with them for a second? And Paul says, the answer is, God says, no, I am righteous, I am holy. There is why I could pass over former sins. There on the cross. Jesus dies to vindicate God's justice and righteousness, not for bad things happening to good people, but for good things happening to bad people. For grace. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Abraham, David, 
All the Old Testament saints, they didn't have a treasury of merit. They were sinners and they needed grace. And God needed to vindicate his righteousness by showing he didn't just look the other way and say, well, you did your best. Come on in. Jesus dies publicly on the cross so that the entire watching universe can see God is holy and just. I love this next sentence. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is about how God can do both. We can envision a God who's not very holy, who just forgives everyone. But he's not very righteous. And that's unsatisfying for people who have truly suffered to know that the people like Stalin, Pol Pot, are going to get away with it. There is no judgment in this life. And if God just sort of freely, oh, okay, whatever, lets you in, then cosmic injustice is done again and again and again without any reckoning. Or we can have a holy and righteous God, but then how can we hope for any forgiveness? The death of Jesus on the cross is what enables God to be both just and justifier, righteous and pronouncing others righteous. It's not on the basis of a law you keep. It's the basis of a sacrifice made, received by faith. I want to make one other point here. Paul doesn't make this till chapter 4, but it's crucial. Christ's resurrection vindicates his righteousness. He mentioned it in chapter 1, verse 4. Turn over to chapter 4 briefly. The proof in Paul's thinking, in the New Testament's thinking, that Jesus was who he said he was, that Jesus was sinless. Because you might be tempted to think Jesus died on the cross. Maybe he deserved it. Plenty of people Rome crucified deserved it. The two thieves on either side of him, one of them confessed he deserved it. The proof that Jesus was righteous and sinless is seen in the resurrection. He says that is why his faith, verse 22 of chapter 4, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The resurrection is crucial for our forgiveness. And the reason is with no resurrection, no proof, no validity that Jesus was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. What confidence can you and I have that the sacrifice is enough, that there is no temporal anger and wrath remaining to be paid off in purgatory? The resurrection's the proof. The sacrifice was accepted. The payment was received God raised him from the dead. Which brings us probably the most famous point in Reformation, understanding the gospel. Now Luther has been pushing back against this notion that there's some law, some, some ritual, some things you can do to improve, to, to grow, to strengthen that part of goodness in you. A lot of what we consider to be sanctification, growth as Christians, Rome considers justification. It's a process. You improve, you grow. And here, I think very clearly, we get the teaching on the nature of the gospel. How can I benefit from the sacrifice? If I can sort of summarize where we've come, man is far worse than we're tempted to think he is. Head to toe, we're rebels, willful. We're hypocrites because we judge others and do the same things. We break our consciences. We become self-righteous in our attempts at religion. 
but God has provided a sacrifice, a full atonement. God has sent his son. There's redemption in Jesus. Okay, well then how? How do I get a share in this? How do I receive forgiveness? How do I get counted righteous in him? Well, we've we've seen it all through this. I've not drawn attention to it, so I wanted to save it for the end. But by faith alone. That's, That's the amazing good news. You don't have to do anything. It's been done for you. The verse 27 and 28. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. By the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's, that's clear. It's, it's, you can read it. What I'm trying to hopefully show you is you can sit down and read three chapters of Romans and it's clear. Oh, there's sermons worth of material and some of the sub points and stuff, but the overarching point he's making, he backs man into a corner with no way of escape and then shows the gospel and then I don't know how clearer Paul could be that this justification, this righteousness of God given to us is received by faith Alone, and that God did this intentionally to exclude our boasting. You and I don't get to say, Yeah, I did the, Jesus did 99%, and I did the last 1%. I had that goodness in me, and I cooperated with it, and it grew, and it grew, and I became better and better, and finally I became good enough for God. Let me read the ninth canon in the Council of Trent. If anyone says, that by faith alone the impious is justified in such a wise as to mean, or in such a way as to mean, that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. If you believe in justification by faith alone, canon 9 damns you to hell. There's, there's real disagreement here. Not that we should be rude and polite, but if, if you think, no, we all basically agree. No, we don't. There is substantive and real disagreement. Faith alone versus faith plus ritual works. Final point Paul makes here. I'm doing better on time than I thought I would do. Well, I'm not done yet. Justification by faith alone upholds God's righteous law. It may seem like a strange thing. Paul anticipates an objection, right? Do we then overthrow the law by faith? On the contrary, we uphold the law. I think Paul's thinking along two lines in this regard. The first is something like this. The Jews... He's imagining, or the Judaizers, people trying to cling to the Old Testament the way they were going after it, would say something like, okay, Paul, so it's Jesus and grace and faith and forgiveness. So apparently the, the law is bad, or we need to jettison it. And Paul's saying, actually, I have a higher view of the law than you do, because I understand we can't keep it, and you think we can. I actually think the law, Paul is saying, I uphold the law more than you do, because I don't dumb it down, round its corners, 
and turn it into something man can keep. My understanding of the law, Paul is saying, is high and righteous and good and holy, and completely unattainable by man. Which one of us has got a high view of the law? No, he says, no, justification of my faith upholds the law. I want to peek around the corner into chapter 4 very, very briefly. I can talk more about this in the ABF. Because in chapter 4, Paul is going to prove that what he's just taught is in the law. Let's just read the first few verses. What then shall be gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham is justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? The scripture, by the way, in Genesis, in the law. Paul's argument is found in the law. The scripture says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Paul says, that's what I'm saying. Justification by faith. There it is in Genesis. Before Abraham was circumcised, he'll make that point. It's a chronological argument. All of the ceremonial observance comes afterwards. Not as though Christians don't need to strive to keep God's law and obey him. But we do not do it to add to our righteousness, to add to our acceptability. Any more than Abraham was adding to his righteousness. Then he'll use David as an example as well. No, the law testifies to this righteousness. You've just misunderstood the law, Paul is saying. So justification by faith upholds the law because it's consistent with the law. It's found in the law. It views the law as unattainable, as high, and not as something man can strive and struggle to achieve. This is the gospel rediscovered at the Reformation but I think plain as day in Romans, that you have no excuse. You're probably far, far worse than you think you are. That your offense against God is far greater than you've considered. That you've never wanted a master or a God. You've wanted to live your own way. Whether you are a nice moral person who enjoys looking down at other people, whether you engage in self-righteous religion, or whether you're just a rank pagan, it makes no difference. The entire world and everyone in it has no valid excuse. We need to stop being ashamed of God's wrath. The only reason we're ashamed of God's wrath is because we think people are better than they are. Our loyalty needs to be on his side. And then we need to celebrate a propitiation, a sacrifice that was more than enough. And we need to look not to a righteousness we can attain in and of ourselves, but a righteousness that comes by faith in a crucified Messiah as a free gift. You can't earn it. Now, faith will strive after God. We saw even in chapter 1, Paul's goal is to bring about the obedience of or that comes from faith, but we, we, we can't get the cart before the horse here. True faith bears fruit. We've seen that in James. Faith works. But faith and faith alone justifies. God will forgive you. God will count Christ's death sufficient for you, apply to you, if you will confess, recognize your guilt, own his diagnosis of your sickness, and flee to his Messiah, his son, for forgiveness. He delights to do it in a way that we don't get the boast. He gets the glory, we get the blessing. God's offer of forgiveness is free and for each and every one of you here this morning. I hope and trust and pray that we have fled to 
Christ for refuge. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to sing our closing song.